Welcome to the Learning Scientist Podcast, a podcast for teachers, students, and parents about evidence-based practice and learning. Hi, I'm Althea Neat Kaminsky for the Learning Scientist, and today I'm very excited. I'm joined by John Hattie from the University of Melbourne, who you may know as the author of Visible Learning. Uh, John, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Althea. It's great to be talking to you. Great. Um, so I have, gosh, a lot of questions. Uh, first, I wondered if we could start by just just really getting to it and um, asking, in all of your research, what advice would you give educators as sort of like the biggest bang for your buck, right? So you've gone through and compiled a lot of information and a lot of research and focused really specifically on just you know, effect sizes, um, which thank you for that, because this is, it's been, um, as as a cognitive psychologist and researcher, I'm so used to talking about effect sizes and things. And so it's been fantastic to see this translated for like a broader audience. And I have a we always have a lot of educators and teachers who reference your work, and we, now we have this sort of more common language to talk in about effect sizes and the importance of big effect sizes. So with that in mind, what is sort of like top two or top three sort of biggest bang for your buck practices? Well, as, as you know, effect sizes are a measure of the magnitude, how big the effect is. And, and the biggest effect by a long way in our business is related to the teachers, um, we've had a whole rhetoric in your country and mine that it's about the curriculum, it's about the schools, it's about the leadership, it's about all those things. No, it's not. It's about the expertise of the teachers. And if I have any mission in visible learning is to reintroduce that word of expertise. And the other part of it is that it's not what teachers do that matter. It's how teachers think about what they do. And that notion of their thinking skills, their evaluative thinking skills as they make decisions on the, on the moment by moment. How they go about interpreting. Like your country's been obsessed like mine about data. Data doesn't matter. It's the interpretation of the data. And that is really a tough decision. And certainly then when you get teachers working together, critiquing their impact. And it begs the question, impact about what? Impact with whom? Impact how much? And so what I'm trying to say is the big message is that it's kind of changing the question more than it is changing much else, is that we've got to start asking about how do we know we're having an impact? Um, it's not as simple as saying the kids are enjoying it, the kids are doing the work. Oh my goodness, in a lot of work that kids do, there isn't much learning. And, and so how do we get teachers to focus on their critique with their colleagues on their impact? How do you get school leaders to make it safe for that to happen? And how do you get systems? Oh my gosh, this is a tough one. Our system is based on age. The older you get, the greater your salary, unless you leave the classroom. That's madness. Now, I know it's tough to introduce expertise, but in this today and in the next 20 years, if we don't deal with that problem, we're going to struggle to get people joining our profession. They want to join the profession because it does have expertise. Um, and our profession doesn't at the moment recognize that. So the big message is how do we recognize the expertise? And let me make one big point here. What keeps me going is I see so much excellence. Oh my goodness, I haven't been in a school yet when I haven't seen excellent teachers having the kind of impact we're talking about. Our problem is we don't know how to scale it up. We keep looking for problems and fixing them. Whereas I want to turn it on its head and say, how can we acknowledge the expertise we already have and grow it? 
So that's the big message. You mentioned several things there, right? That uh, the teachers, teachers are already doing so much, right? And there are so many things that teachers are doing so well. And for a lot of people, in a lot of cases, they just aren't in systems that are recognizing that, that are capitalizing that on that, and are really highlighting and elevating that. The other thing that you mentioned um, that that I really loved was this idea of of are we asking the right questions, right? Are students doing it? Are students right? Whatever. Um, this comes down to like how are we defining success or how are we defining learning, right? What is it that we actually want to take away? Because right as you mentioned, uh, the data doesn't it can only tell you so much, right? It depends on how. You, what lens you're viewing it through, what conclusions you can draw from it. And this is something that we get asked all the time in our workshops, or the, at least in workshops that I've given about like things like student engagement. How do I get the kids to, to learn more or to care more about something and, and engagement? And, and what I really try to press back on and is, well, what do you mean by engagement, right? That that can look really different in different contexts. And we have to think really carefully and critically about, well, what is it that we're doing here? What is it that we think people should be taking from this? And that's that's hard to do, right? And and not everyone's always in a place where they're where they have the sort of space and time to think critically, especially if you're under a system that is, you're teaching to a set of standards, right? And you don't really have that same flexibility. It's something that I'm always very impressed by and amazed by when I look at my you know colleagues in K through 12 education compared to me as a university professor, I kind of have a lot of time and space to go like, oh, what do I really want them to get from this course, right? Because nobody's, they don't have to take a test at the end of the day. Nobody's really evaluating how well my class performed to somebody else's and funding is not reliant upon that. So that's, yeah, it's a, it's a big difficult nut to crack. Oh, look, you're right. Um, but using the examples that you gave, like when we went out and asked teachers, what did they mean by engagement? They answered in terms of the kids were doing the work. They were finishing the work. They were on task. Now, from a student point of view, that's not what engagement means at all. Um, I go to another step. We as teachers love talking about teaching. Kids couldn't care less. They want to talk about learning. They want to understand, Athia, what that mystery secret is that how come you know it and you know how to do it and I don't? And you telling me is not, it can help, but it's not going to make the difference. But if you listen to me and help me understand where I'm going wrong, how I can think differently, how I can process, how I can get other strategies... And I think that's the, the thing that's quite amazing when you look at schools, like 80%, 89% of the time in classrooms, teachers are talking. For some kids, that's great. In fact, kids above average love teachers to talk because they know how to play that game. They're winners at that game. But kids below average or kids who are not understanding at the moment, they want you to shut up. They want you to hear them talking aloud so you can say, well, that's not how you do it. Like when we looked at 20,000 hours of classrooms and asked how many times did we see a teacher thinking aloud? Or how many times did we hear the teacher asking the kid to think aloud? Or when did a teacher listen to a kid get a problem wrong and give them another strategy? In 20,000 hours, we found zero. Now think of it from the student point of view. They want you to listen. They want you to stand in your shoes to try and understand what you're doing, particularly when you get things wrong. In many classes, it's terrifying for the kid to get things wrong or to admit it, so they don't. And And errors surely should be an opportunity to learn, not an embarrassment. And then... My last point here on this would be, and what the kid wants is how do how do I improve? Kids are improvement engines. We as teachers often tend to be correction engines. And when you portrayed schools 
as teaching to the test, reading the standards, it turns into a sort of a rare vision mirror. Have the kids got it? Whereas what the kid wants to know is, where do I go next? And so the argument is, understand the world from the point of view of how the kids are thinking, how the kids are learning, where they want to go. And that's what great teachers do. That's incredibly validating to hear because that makes me feel less self-conscious of the times where I I mess up in front of the classroom, right? That happens, right? Um, And I always try to be as transparent about it as possible when it happens, right? Because part of that for me is I know that I'm, I'm modeling how to be wrong, right? That that's okay. And that that is okay. And that even I, as the you know professor in front of the classroom, I make mistakes or I get confused, right? And so I try my best to say, oh, oops, you know, oh gosh, sorry guys. I think I probably thought of this because we had just been talking about this other topic and they're easily confusable, but actually this is the better thing to use here or whatever, right? Which sort of, it, it, it's, even as the person in charge of the classroom, that's kind of, it, it took me a while to get comfortable with that and okay with it and to say to myself, I'm modeling how to be wrong. If I expect them to answer questions and to be wrong, right? I need to let them know that it's okay to do that, right? Well, it's, it's more than that, Anthea. I want you to go a step further. I want you to deliberately give your students some problems with a wrong answer and ask them to work out why. Like I know you in your career, you, you're moving into medicine, into surgery. Like when I have the surgeon working on me, I know that surgeon's going to get it right if things go well. But my, what I want that surgeon to do more than anything else, what if things don't go well? Yes. What if things are making mistakes? I want them to be error detectors. I want them to be learning machines. I want them to know the multiple ways that things can go wrong. And that whole notion, and you can see I'm a bit obsessed with this, this whole notion of error and mistakes has to be a legitimate, safe thing to do in a classroom. And what I'd ask you know, our listeners to do to their own students is ask them, what does it mean to be a learner in this classroom? Oh my goodness, it can be frightening. For many kids, for too many kids, particularly under your state standards and your way you run your schools, a learner is a compliant. Mm-hmm. It's compliance. That is the antithesis of a good learner. It is at the edge, not going into spaces you've not been in before, making mistakes, learning from them. Oh my God. And that's what kids love. That's why they love their video games. It's If you make a mistake, you're not a bad person. You're not stupid. It's, you're at the edge. That's what we want to see. And when you go into great classrooms, you see kids at the edge. You see teachers who are very nosy. They want to know, Anthony, how are you thinking? How come you, you, you went down that particular route, which turns out to be wrong? How come you went down that route, which is much more efficient? than I ever imagined. That's what great teaching is and great learning is. Yeah, and that's something I, I I talk to my students at the university level all the time about shifting them from being knowledge consumers to knowledge producers, right? And that they sort of, it, very clearly early on when they're first year students, they're coming just straight from you know, the education system, they want to know what answer, which answer is right. And they get really frustrated with me because I don't give them the, the right answer. Instead, a lot of my classes focus on competing theories or multiple theories and, you know, who's right, who's wrong. I'm like, well, which one do you think is important? Maybe under this situation, these are more important variables. And under that situation, you know, you might think something else. And it's, it's always one of the joys for me in my work is watching students go from tell me the right answer, tell me what I need to think to, well, you know, I think that this is what's important, right? To watch them sort of go into how do I consider this? How do I approach this? And be more aware of how has 
you know, their own thinking evolved on this and maybe their own considerations evolved. And so the argument is you're saying and I'm saying is I want students to be evaluators. Like mm-hmm. t- take this new chat AI that's out there. Now, having played with it a lot and enjoying it, actually, um, its biggest problem is that sh- sometimes it can be shallow. Sometimes it can miss things. That requires a skill to know that. Whereas before chat AI and this, we used to say to the students, how do you work out it's truthful or not? How do you work out it's accurate or not? We've now got another dilemma in front of us. How do you know it's shallow? How do you know it's getting at the right stuff? Because that chat AI does a lot of the work for you, but it doesn't necessarily hit the high points or necessarily the low points. So that skill of evaluating. Now, what I find stunning is you've got a three-year-old. Your three-year-old's brilliant at it. They know when it's rubbish. They know when it's not satisfactory. And I'm kind of like you in a different way. I have grandkids that age. They are stunningly good at evaluating. They're stunningly good at asking why. They're not prepared to accept just because you say it's right. Why is it between the ages of five and eight they lose that? Why is it schools don't capture that? And if you think of what we're talking about with your three-year-old, the essence is curiosity. They're incredibly curious. And They want to delve in, but they're not going to accept your answer just because you say it. It has to work for them. And that's what learning is. How do you make it work for me? How do I build, as you say, those competing theories, those big ideas? How do I build that coat hanger to hang those ideas on? Otherwise, all you're doing is training kids for jeopardy. Yeah, one of my my favorite things to do that I'm trying my best to impart to my students is to form an opinion, right? That I love walking into a situation where I have just no knowledge and it's overwhelming and I go, I have no idea what's going on here. And then walking out of that situation going, I have formed an opinion. I have learned enough to to understand and assess and evaluate, you know, the pros and cons of this thing, how it meshes with my own belief structure. And I have formed an opinion, right? This could be on something as complex as like, I, we recently bought a house, which meant that we spent months looking at different websites and houses, just kind of casually talking about what we liked or didn't like, what was important to us. And over the course of you know that time period, I was like, I have formed an opinion. There are some things that if I had, if I had to make a choice at the beginning of that process, it probably wouldn't look the same as it did at the end of the process after I had weighed pros and cons and and formed an opinion. Just on that forming opinion, though, here's the key for me. Anthea, are you prepared to be wrong? Yes. That's the difference. Yes. Yes. That I, well, yeah, that I, I, I'm right now teaching a class on critical and creative cognition. And this is something that I talk a lot about that, that, that so much of thinking critically about something is you have to be okay with being wrong. And that that takes a certain mindset, a certain attitude, and that it's not ne- the people who are able to think critically about big problems aren't necessarily innately smarter. They have some magic capacity that us regular people maybe have. When you're thinking critically, you have to be willing to be wrong. You have to be willing to to evaluate evidence that may run contrary. And what makes you a good thinker and a good learner in that instance isn't necessarily that you are somehow smarter than somebody else. It's that you have an attitude or a predisposition that allows you to accept being wrong, right? And that's going to let you move forward. When students form an opinion, they're prepared to be wrong. They actually go out and and look for the contrary evidence. That, to me, is the mark of a really, really great learner. Um, Whereas some of the students in our schools, not prepared to do that. They just want to do right, wrong, right, wrong, right, wrong. And, And it's not surprising, given what we've done to them for 10, 15 years, that we've given them tests. We've told them they're right, they're wrong. We've graded them to standards. We've implied that if you don't get 100%, you're no good. It's just a devastating way of doing things. But here's the good news. Every school I've ever worked in, 
There are teachers who do what you and I are talking about, and they live under the same standards, the same test regimes, the same leadership, the same kinds of kids. Don't tell me it can't be done. It is being done. Right. That there's it. There has to be another model for how you can encourage this type of critical thinking um, and still encourage people to seek disconfirmatory evidence. Yeah, but let let me say, there is another model. We did it. It was called COVID. I saw more that kind of thinking during COVID. I saw more collective efficacy. I saw more teachers covering less, going deeper. I saw more kids problem solving. I saw so many teachers realize their kids don't know how to teach themselves. They don't have the skills of learning. And they suddenly had to teach those skills. You couldn't on Zoom talk for 90% of the time, ask 200 questions that required less than three word answers. You had to change. The biggest travesty of COVID is we learned nothing. We're rushing back. We did it. Now, I'm not pretending COVID's all wonderful. There were death, unemployment. But I think we did have that experiment, kind of not that well thought out experiment, where we show there is an alternative way. So I think that you know, we went through that. I think we should go back and say, what are we doing during COVID that worked so well? Yes, yeah, some things didn't work well. Yes, there was equity issues. But in that time, I think we did so much better in terms of realizing it's about the kid. We learned we had to gradually release responsibility. Oh, my goodness, it was not very gradual in some cases. It was pretty sharp. And then suddenly we realized that that's what schooling is about, teaching kids to become their own teachers not recipients of knowledge. Right, right. That sort of stripped away this this illusion that we had before that you could just go in, talk, and then, you know, I as a teacher teach and the students are sitting there and then, therefore they learn, right? And then at the end of the day, we, we've had the class and they've learned it, right? And that definitely presented some challenges. It, it made us stretch our wings a little bit and try some new things. Maybe some things worked, maybe some things didn't, but we were all very suddenly thrust into a position where we've got to try it because that you cannot do what we did before. Seeking you may be wrong, and we learn from that, and that's where errors are so powerful. There's so much more learning, and we know in cognitive science that we make it an error and we fix it, we're more likely to remember it than we get it right the first time because our memory is such that it just fades out, whereas if we get it wrong, that's an incident. Oh, yeah, I remember that. I did that wrong for a while, and then suddenly I got it right. And I think that's where that power of mistakes and errors and uh, our opportunities and I certainly think that during COVID, we saw many of that. And some of us weren't ready for it because we like our model of teaching. And you know, the conspiracy is that kids above average want you to talk more. They want you to have more Jeopardy questions because that's the game they're good at. And it just doesn't work. Now, for your students at university, we hope, we kind of assume that they have some learning skills. They have some teaching skills to be successful. That's not true with six-year-olds and 14-year-olds. We have to teach those skills. But, but the killer is... We have to do it in the context of what we're doing today, not run separate courses. Um, and a good test, you know, COVID was a good example. We can still do it now. Ask the kids to work alone or work in, in pairs for the next hour. You sure as anything see if they have the skills to do that. Some of them don't. Some of them do. Some of them take over. That's not a skill at working in a group. Um, and I'm a great fan of um, looking at what employers are asking for right now, they're asking for team players, they're asking for translators, they're asking for communicators. And if they don't have the knowledge, the employer can help on that. But if they don't have those skills of working in teams, the employer doesn't want them. I want to shift gears just a little bit because Cindy asked on, on Twitter if people had any questions for you. And one of the questions that came up was just wanting to know generally more about effect sizes and why why 0.4 right so you recommend that anything with an effect size bigger than 0.4 probably pretty good something you should pay attention to and anything less than 0.4 probably not 
um, something to maybe need to weigh as heavily. Um, so the question that we have is, uh, how did we decide on that number? What's Is there any magic to that number? Was this arbitrary? I've decided something's big and something small, so here's a cutoff. It's very, very simple. It's the average of all effect sizes over 400 million kids. Simple as that. And so what I did is said, like, like a lot of our debate is comparing what happens in schools with the negative when kids don't learn. Well, it turns out 95% of things we do to kids enhances their achievement. So that's a pretty uninteresting question to, to look at what works compared to what doesn't work. And I think that whole work, what works philosophy is, is just misleading. And so when you look at uh, 350 influences, 400 million kids, and you say, what's the average effect? It's 0.4. And my fascination is let's look at those influences above 4.4 and compare them below 0.4. Now, it's sometimes led to some misunderstandings, um, like you kind of hinted at one of the misunderstandings. Some of those things below 0.4 should worry us deeply. We should not ignore them. Like the effect size of subject matter knowledge is 0.09. That doesn't mean to say we don't care about teachers' subject matter knowledge. It means we have to understand why it is so low. And uh, class size has a very small effect. Now, it doesn't matter we shouldn't worry about class size. It should be We should be worrying about why it is. When we have smaller classes, we don't get the effect we want. The other thing is when we work in schools, some schools can get effect sizes on average much greater than 0.4. And so I'm interested in those above and those below. So that's my fascination. What's the average? And then What's happening above and below? So point four. Now, here's an interesting thing. I asked the question, what's the average average effect and gain when a kid goes from one year in school to the next year in school? So I analyzed NAEP in the US. At the time, I had data on no child left behind. I analyzed SATs in England, ASTEL in New Zealand, the NAPLAN here in Australia. In every country, for every age group, the average effect size was exactly the same to the second decimal point, point four. So the other argument is that 0.4 is an indicator of when we when kids gain more than a year's growth for a year's input. And I think that's just fascinating. So 0.4 is a reasonable number, but let's not get too obsessed. It's the relativity of what happens in your classroom that matters. But it's not plucked out of the air. It's just the average. So somewhat related to this, uh, another question that came up was how, so a meta-analysis, right? All of the 0.4 of these effect sizes, these are all based on meta-analyses, meaning that you've taken a bunch of different studies, right? It's not that one experiment comes out and we say, aha, this, this thing. No, we have to try time and time again because people are complicated um, and it's hard to really get a clear snapshot of something as complex as teaching and learning in any given study, right? You really have to look across a pool of them. So one of the questions is, how do you decide which ones to look at? Like, how do you decide, how do you go about deciding your inclusion criteria for these many big, large scale, multiple analyses? At the level of meta-analysis, this is where someone takes many studies and then ask, what's the average effect? And, and remember, when Gene Glass invented this procedure, his obsession was not just about the average. His obsession was about the variability around the average. It doesn't make a difference with boys, girls, five-year-olds, 15-year-olds. And in our jargon, we call those the moderators. And that's our obsession. And so people who do meta-analyses are looking for that. But there is a whole literature, particularly in medicine, um, even though meta-analysis started in education, and of asking about quality. And there's a whole lot of arguments that we shouldn't include low quality work or if there is no difference between low quality and high quality in terms of the effect, maybe we should. Whole big debate. Now, 
I'm not quite at that point. I'm at the next point. I do a meta-analysis of meta-analyses. And yes, there are some meta-analyses that I throw out. They're embarrassing. They're wrong. They're based like doing a meta-analysis on three studies is, is laughable, but people do. I don't include those. And so, yes, but what my focus always is on is on those moderators. I'm always looking for them. And so I ask, does quality make a difference to the meta-analysis? There's not a bigger literature determining quality of meta-analyses as there is quality of first study. So it's still a reasonably new area. And so, yes, sometimes we do throw some studies out. Sometimes we, well, we quite often throw studies out, but sometimes we throw meta-analyses out. But here's the hard thing. Oh, my gosh, it's hard to find those moderators. Not that we shouldn't look for them, but what works best tends to work best with special needs kids, with gifted kids, with five-year-olds, with 15-year-olds, with kids in in, in New York State and in, in Melbourne and in Shanghai. It doesn't vary. That qualities of those teachers, that focus on error and learning and all that, it's hard to find. Still should keep looking for them, but hard to find. Uh, so you have a new book coming out, the sequel, Yes. Um, it's, it's so, uh, one of the questions we have is what, what have you learned, uh, from the first rights, uh, uh, visible learning to visible learning the sequel? Uh, was there, were there any, was, was there anything that surprised you or big changes or is this just sort of an update, right? That more studies have been happening. And so now it's time for an update or has there been something very big and new and exciting that you discovered when, when putting together the sequel? I decided I did not want to call it a second edition because then it would just be an update. And as you're hinting, I've learned a lot in the last 14, 15 years. Um, what did not happen for me before 2009, because it wasn't my career, is the model has been implemented in tens of thousands of schools around the world. And I see that. So that's a, a, a new slide. And so I went very Star Wars-like and said, I'm going to call it a sequel because I'm focusing this time much more on the story and the data is there. Whereas the first one, here's all the data and here's the story I develop. This is like going back to what you said. I've developed the story, so I'm looking for evidence that works and it doesn't work. And so, yeah, like one of the, the things I never realized back then was the incredible importance of teacher clarity. I didn't realize the importance of that whole collaborative notion, not just collaboration amongst teachers, but collaboration amongst students. Um, that comes out as very powerful. Um, we'd, we've learned a lot, uh, like... One of the struggles we still have in our work is that we have that incredible focus in schools on failure and trying to fix it, and we're very good at that. But we don't have a very good focus on success and scaling it up. Um, and so looking at how we can do that, how we can optimise those teachers in every school that are having really great effects to form a coalition to bring the, invite the others in. And sometimes our best teachers aren't necessarily the best at cooperation and collaboration. All they want to do is come and watch me teach, which I have no time for. Because when you watch someone teach, you still have your lens of your mind on and you don't change it. You just look for tips and tricks. But when you get teachers thinking aloud um, and when you work very much in schools where the principal creates a climate for thinking aloud and time for thinking aloud. Uh, so that came out as incredibly strong, that power of teachers to critique in a really positive way. The, um, this book has a lot more on learning. I, I call the work visible learning and I get criticized that, but, but hey, learning's not visible. It happens in here. And I think, yeah, that, but that's the point. I want to make that learning more visible. So I got the title right, but in the first book, I didn't spend enough time on what does it mean to learn? What is a model of learning? How does it fit in? So that's in this new book. So it's a lot more about the story. It's a lot more about 
uh, how you put, how it was implemented in practice. And yeah, I've gone from 150 to 350 influencers. And so trying to not just say that let's now learn 350. How does it fit into that big story? So that's the big focus. And so, yeah, I think it's um, quite a different, uh, much more focused on the story this time. Well, thank you so much for for joining me. We're, we're running short on time. But before I have you go, when does the book come out? Where can people, where can people buy it? Well, it comes out on March the 20th, uh, so it's not far away. Uh, pre-orders are available on the Routledge site and, and on Amazon and all the usual sites um, that has just opened. So March the 20th, and I'm looking forward to that date. Right. I'll be sure to include links in the show notes for anybody who wants to pick up a copy of either Visible Learning or Visible Learning, the sequel. Uh, John, thank you again so much for, for talking to me today. Thank you, Anthea. Thank you very much. Thank you. This episode is funded by listeners like you. To support our work and gain access to exclusive content, visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash learning scientists.